0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. You guys ever had to spend time with somebody that has really bad body odor? I remember back uh, in my single days, we had this one roommate who smelled really bad, and he didn't realize it. And... um, he never really learned basic hygiene things like that, so I I was given the task of going and breaking the news to him. <laughs> and I was like, "Hey, man, I really like being your roommate and all, but um, and I know you probably aren't aware of this, but you you kind of have like a bad odor, um, and it's sort of affecting the rest of us." And he was just like shocked embarrassed, devastated. He had no idea, obviously, because he was kind of used to his own smell. And he was like, well, what do you think I should do about it? And I was like, well... I had a couple ideas. Like, you know how when you go to the bathroom, and there's that one part of the bathroom with a curtain in front of it? Well, that's called a shower. And you can just get right in there that little white rectangle, you know, don't eat that. I mean, that's, but it's good. It's good. You can just clean your soap. It's soap. And um, I was like, and you know how like sometimes you see some of us guys, we reach into the medicine cabinet, we pull out this little stick and we take the lid off and we kind of, you know, put it on our armpits. It's like, that's called deodorant. And you can get some of that too. And you could put it on yourself. And and here's another thing. You know how sometimes you go in the basement and there's those, that machine in the corner that looks kind of scary, and makes a lot of noise? <laughs> well, that's, that's a washing machine. <laughs> and you can just put your clothes right in there and, and it'll clean them and they'll smell nice when you get done with it. Well, <clears throat> some people have worse body odor problems than others. Um, not too long ago, actually, I was talking with a guy who was homeless. He, he had not changed his clothes or showered probably in months. And uh, the smell was pretty bad coming off of him. I, I was talking to him. I sort of had to keep my distance just because if I got too close to him, it was sort of hard to focus on what he was saying just because the smell coming off him was pretty bad. And, um, you know, when we come before God... Um, we're kind of like that person with the really bad body odor. You know, my, this homeless guy I was talking to, I, I didn't say, man, how can you stand that smell? Because I know what his answer would have been. He would have said, what smell? Because when you've lived in a certain smell long enough, you kind of get used to it. And our problem before God is not a physical smell, but it's something much deeper. It's, it's a spiritual problem. It's the problem of human sin that has has set up a barrier between us and God. You know, human sin, it's like this blinding gas that comes off of us, and God simply cannot stand to be in its presence. And you look at human beings in Scripture, when they come into contact with the perfect God, they, it just—it starts to break in on them how different He is from us. And they just fall to their knees before Him. Isaiah 59 talks about our problem. He says, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. And so there's this barrier between us and God because of our sin. And that that keeps us from getting together. We can't just walk up to God and be like, okay, God, I want a relationship with you. Because God's going to be like, whoa, what about that smell? And then we have the what smell conversation. And God is like, no, there's a problem between me and you, and something has got to be done about that. And this is what we've been talking about in the book of Romans. We've been talking about our problem, guilt, separation from God, and God's solution. There's the bad news, and there's the good news. And we read this verse back in chapter 1, which is sort of the center, center of the book, It's the verse he unpacks for the rest of the book of Romans where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the good news or the gospel. That's the same thing. Good news gospel. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. God is perfect. We are not. He is righteous. We are unrighteous. And he says... You can't earn your way to me, but I'm going to give you salvation simply to anyone who places their trust in me. And that righteousness is by faith, trust, belief from first to last. God is revealing his righteousness through this good news. And, um, you know, we've really been talking in Romans chapters one, two, and three about this problem of human sin. I thought it'd be good just to zoom out just for a minute and talk about the flow in this book and how important this passage is here tonight. We've been talking about the problem of human sin, that everybody is, is guilty before God. And then that's the bad news. And he's finally getting to the end of the bad news. And then he starts talking about the good news. Romans 3 through 5, he begins to talk about the salvation that God offers. How God declares us right in his sight through faith because of what Jesus Christ has done. But sometimes, even though we're right in God's sight, our actions don't line up with it. And so then he spends a couple of chapters talking about sanctification, which is the Bible's term for spiritual growth. We have the bad news, and then we're saved, and then God begins to change us. And then Paul spends a couple chapters talking about God's sovereignty, because some people are, have some objections to God's plan. And they say, God is allowed to save people however he wants to save them. And then finally, the rest of the book, it's really practical, and it talks about our service to God. Because of what God has done for us, how should we respond to him? It talks about a life lived for other people, uh, how we interact with society. And so this is the flow of thought through Romans. Right now, we are at the transition from the bad news to the good news, the hinge point where he begins to talk about God's solution and its implications for the rest of the book. And we've seen that... Um, as it says in our first verse of chapter 3, verse 9 of our passage, he says, we've already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. We, we spent the last couple weeks talking about that. Whether it's the Gentile who grew up you know, far away from any religion, whether it's a moralistic Gentile, or whether it's these Jews that grew up with the Old Testament, Paul is saying everybody is alike. Nobody is good enough for God. Some people might be a little bit better than others, but that's only when we compare ourselves with each other. You think about a great long jump competition. Now you might be pretty good at the long jump. And so we might set up a competition. And we go down to North Carolina and we find a big nice long pier with no railing at the end and we're going to have a competition to see who can jump from North Carolina all the way to Europe. And so you know you got your new you got your running shoes on you you're all warmed up and limber, and you just start booking it down that pier. And you're running faster and faster and faster. And you hit the end, and you leap with all of your might. And you fly and spoosh. 29 feet, 3 inches, a new world record by half an inch. And then the next, the next contestant steps up, or should I say rolls up, because it's your grandma, and she's in a wheelchair. And so Granny, she starts going down that pier, and she's rolling, and she's working those wheels. And she gets the end, and she gives it one last push, and kaspoosh. Zero feet, zero inches. <laughs> Tying the world record for the shortest ever long jump. Now, granted, you jumped a lot farther than Granny. But nobody made it even close to jumping to Europe. And that's about how close we are to reaching God's standard of righteousness. You might be able to go, be a little better than the people next to you. But compared to what the standard is, ain't nobody jumping all the way to Europe. Nobody's going to live up to the standard of righteousness that God has. And that's, we've sort of been fleshing out that point. And that's, that's the bad news. We've got to come face, face to face with the bad news here. And tonight, he's going to talk about God's solution, which is his righteousness. We we're looking to ourselves and self-righteousness. No, he says, look to me and the righteousness I provide. And so he's going to talk about why we need his righteousness, how we get his righteousness, and then just a little bit about some practical implications, how it applies to your life. So first of all, why do we need God's righteousness? Well, Paul's going to rattle off a litany of Old Testament quotations on this point. He says, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Three verses from Psalm 14. And you know, we might go out on the street. We might ask people, you know, are people basically good? And you might have quite a few people that are like, yeah, I think human beings are basically good. You might be split right down the middle. Yeah, society says, yeah, pretty good. And in fact, our society, in our society, one of the worst things you can do is tell someone that there's something wrong with them. That's like one of the greatest sins you can commit is to shame someone or make someone feel guilty. But the Bible says, are people basically good? No. Nope, we are not. And it says the reason you feel guilty is because you are guilty. And this is a doctrine, a theological concept known as total depravity total depravity, something that describes human beings. You know, It's saying no one is righteous. No, not one. It seems sort of like maybe overstating the case, but it's not. But it's helpful to talk about what total depravity is and what it isn't. First of all, it's not referring to the degree of human sin. By that, I mean it's not that we're unable to discern right from wrong. We're able to tell that in a lot of cases. We're not totally disabled in that area. It's not that we've Every human being engages in every type of sin possible. I mean, there's simply not enough years in a human lifespan to commit all the sins you could possibly commit in this world. You know, we're, we're so creative in, in the ways that we we turn away from God. And so we might have your own particular ones that you're into. It's also not saying that we're as sinful as we possibly could be. I mean, couldn't you pretty much, even the most sinful person ever, couldn't they have been just a little bit more sinful? No matter what you're doing at any given time, I mean, just just... If you want to be more sinful, just stop what you're doing, go, you know, punch an old lady in the face, and then go back to what you're doing. And there you have it. It's, you're more sinful all of a sudden. And you could, you could theoretically repeat that process. And you could probably create your own types of sins. But the point is, we're never quite as sinful as we could possibly be. We can always do a little worse. But on the other hand, total depravity refers to the extent of human sin. It means every part of us is affected. The thought, the will, the emotions, even our bodies are affected by sin. Even our good works are tainted. Even if we're doing something nice, there's, there's a lot of times a little something creeps in where we begin to be, get proud and pat ourselves on the back. I mean, Scripture says that anything not done from faith is sin. Anything not done for the glory of the God who created us. Anytime we wake up in the morning and our every, our every thought is not, I want to serve God, I want to glorify Him today, that's sin. We're falling short of the way we should be. We're also unable to leave our sin behind. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. As Jeremiah says, Can a leopard take away its spots? Neither can you start doing good, for you've always done evil. Yeah, it runs very deep. And we may try to, you know, there's a whole racks full of self-help books and (laughs) blogs and things like that, and yet we still find ourselves struggling with the the same problems, and we eradicate one only to find it replaced with another. And he says it eight different ways here. No one, no one, no one. All have turned away, all useless. No one, not a single one. He can't emphasize this enough. And notice he begins No one seeks God. That's sort of the starting point. We're cut off from our Creator, we've turned away from Him, and then that leads to a whole bunch of other problems in our lives. He says, Their throats are open graves, their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet rush to commit murder. It's like Paul's this spiritual doctrine. He's just going right down through the human body and showing how our, our words, isn't that how we hurt people so much of the time? How we dishonor God? Our bitterness, our, our, our throats are open graves. Feet rushing to commit murder. Um <clears throat> Jesus said it's what comes from the inside that defiles you. From, from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts. Yeah, in Jesus' day, they're all worried about sin germs. And they're like, oh man, I, I bumped into a sinner today. I better wash my hands really good or I'm going to get sin into me. And Jesus says, you think sin comes from what you eat? You need to look at the, the source of the rot and that's inside of you. That's your problem. That's where the evil comes from. Paul says, ruin and misery mark their ways. What a good description of the human race. And the path of peace they have not known. One of the saddest parts and one of the greatest marks of sin is our inability to find peace. Perhaps you've been looking for the path of peace. Perhaps you've come here tonight and not knowing where to find it. Why not let God speak to you and show you how to get on the right path? He concludes the way he started they have no reverence for God at all. Is this an accurate description of humanity? Yeah some people are kind of offended by this they're upset by this but honestly think about it. You think about technology. You know when we develop a new technology we're often thinking how can I hurt somebody with this? How can I use this to my advantage? You know, something like uh, splitting the atom comes along, and we're like, what a great source of energy. Let's think how, what's the first thing we did with that? Let's make a weapon that can melt the faces off a million people at once. That's the kind of thing that a human would come up with. Or the Internet comes onto the scene 30, 40 years ago, and all... It did not take long for us to completely fill it up with all kinds of pornography and hate speech and lies. And, you know, people, let me just create a virus and see if I can get it to go onto somebody else's computer. Just because I can. I mean, what sort, of, what sort of other animal would do that sort of thing besides human beings? You think about the environment. You think about our neglect of the environment and our greed for more. You think about war. Wars are not going down as we become more enlightened, but the number of, of wars between states is just, just the same or higher, and the number of intense conflicts within nation states is just going up and up and up all throughout the 20th century and on into the 21st. We're not getting along better in our enlightened state. Hunger, you know, we got, you got know, a third of the world starving to death while the rest of us are eating ourselves to death. Again, it sounds like the sort of problem that human beings would create and who's responsible? I mean, it's we're like, well, I mean, politicians are responsible. Yeah, but who are politicians? They're just human beings with power, right? What about religion? Religion's responsible. Well, OK, first of all, religion created by humans. Second of all, atheism, you know, atheism. The first great atheist communist government, Russia, what is the first leader, Stalin, doing? He exterminates 20 million people. Not a real good star for atheism, either. Maybe culture is what gives us our problems. Well, isn't culture just a bunch of people together? Now, could it be that the problem here is the human race? That the Bible is right? That the Bible is diagnosing something wrong that we know to be true? That it's really telling us what our problem is? Yes. I think that's exactly what's happening here. And we, we, we can't shirk responsibility for this. We need to say, God... I agree with this, not just for us in general, but for me as an individual. It's not that everything I've ever done is evil, but I've done wrong. And the reason I feel guilty, God, is because I am guilty. We need to come to a place where we can say that from the heart to God. Now, what about the law? God has given us moral instructions in his word, right? Maybe that would help. Paul says the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. I thought the point of the law was so that sin would decrease. But he says, no. The point is to show people they have a problem. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And the law is a diagnostic tool. You don't realize that you have a deep problem until you start to try to do the right thing. And the law comes in, it's like a mirror that shows us the problems. Or it's like an x-ray that shows us what the real problem is, but has no ability to solve the problem. Think about this. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Here's an x-ray of a guy. Can you tell what's wrong with him? There's like a three-inch nail right into his forehead. This guy had this nail on his forehead for four years, didn't know it was there went into the doctor complaining of a headache. And they said, I think we know your problem, sir. Now, the x-ray didn't solve his problem. What the x-ray did was, he went in knowing there was something wrong, but he wasn't exactly sure what it was. And the x-ray says, boom, here it is. And from there, you need a good physician to go in and actually do the extraction. You need somebody with the actual power of healing To go in and take care of the problem. But you've also got to be willing to let that person take care of the problem. And this is what's happening in the book of Romans. God is showing us the x ray, He's showing us the bad news because He's trying to bring us to a point of humility where we can receive the help that He wants to give us. This is you right here. You're walking around, you know something's wrong. God is saying, This is what's wrong. You're cut off from me. You need the forgiveness that only I can provide. And this is where he goes next in verses 21 through 26. And this is um, what one theologian calls possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. You know, the Bible is like almost 1,200 chapters, 31,000 verses. It's a big book. You wonder sometimes, could we just boil it down to like, like the, the heart of it? Well, if you ask me to do that, I would show you Romans 3, 21 through 26, which explains in the greatest detail the theology of the salvation that God offers. How do we get God's righteousness now that we know that we need it? And he says in verse 21, Now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. It's not by trying to be a good person, like religion says. And this was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets. Long ago. Yes, this is not something that God just pulled out of nowhere. No, he was setting up for this throughout the Old Testament. 1,500 years of scripture that he was revealing to his people. He says, I promised that this way of being made right is going to be apart from the law, without keeping the requirements of the law. What does he mean? Well, it's weird, because in the book of Exodus, when God first begins to reveal the law to his people... He gives them the Ten Commandments. And then, two chapters later, he says, I never declare a guilty person to be innocent. Whoa. That's a pretty high bar if you really understand what God requires of his people. You should never covet anything, never want something that isn't yours. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength at all times. And God says, if you haven't done that, you're guilty. And I never declare a guilty person to be innocent. He doesn't do that. God is perfectly just. And he upholds that justice just like a a judge. We don't want our judges to be corrupt and declaring guilty people innocent. If we don't want our judges to do that, how much worse would it be if the God of the universe did that? And yet, in the book after Exodus, Leviticus, he starts it this way. He says, when you guys break my law, and I know that you will, here's what you do. You get an animal and you bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle is where they worshiped. So you may be accepted by the Lord. Lay your hand on the animal's head and the Lord will accept its death in your place to purify you, making you right with him. So somehow we're being purified, but by an animal? They must have known that the death of an animal could never take their place. They must have known this was a picture that this, I deserve this death. God said from the very beginning of Scripture, sin brings death. I deserve this. You know, you think about it, somebody goes and, and they, they commit cold-blooded murder. And they walk into court and they're like, your honor, this worm will serve my death sentence. And they drop the worm on the floor. You can't do that. You can't just swap a worm in there to get out of your death sentence. And that's what Scripture says. It says you can't just throw a goat out there and think that you're cool. No, there's something much deeper with this. God doesn't want us just going through the motions of sacrifices. No, he wants our heart to understand what's really happening here. Forgiveness is being made, and they didn't know how. Because God doesn't declare a guilty person innocent. But somehow there's a substitute taking place. And this was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. He says it's a way to be right with him. And this is a theological term called Justification. And the way I learned to remember this as a young Christian that's always stuck with me is justification is just as if I never sinned. Justification, just as if I never sinned. When God looks at you, if you've been made right by Christ, he sees you just as if you'd never sinned. And it's by grace alone, it says by now, now God has shown us And so we see this is God's initiative. You know, in religion, we move toward God. In Christianity, God moves toward us. We wouldn't have come up with this. We couldn't have gotten it even if we did. But God has made the move toward us. And he has shown us a way to be made right with him. And he promised it in Moses and the prophets long ago. We're made right with God by placing our trust, our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. It's the great leveler. We all must crawl down to the doggy door of grace that God has provided. For everyone of sinned. we all fall short of God's glorious standard. That's what we did. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. Yes, this is God's undeserved kindness. It's freely given. We don't deserve it at all. We'd all messed up. But God comes to us through Jesus Christ, and he makes us an offer of forgiveness. It's the difference between do and done. Religion starts with do. What do I do for God? But Christianity is the only, it's the only religion that starts with a big done. You wouldn't even call it a religion. It's a relationship. It's different than religion in that way, because it starts with what God has done for you. And this is in Christ alone. It's in Christ alone. In Christ alone, God redeemed his people. He did this through Christ Jesus. When he freed us from the penalty for our sins, this is the term redemption in some of our Bibles. You know, back then they had slavery. And as a slave, a lot of times you went into slavery because there was a debt you couldn't pay. But if someone could come along and pay the debt that you owed, then you could be set free from slavery. And he says, that's what Jesus did. It was in Christ that you have been redeemed. You had a sin debt you couldn't possibly pay, but Jesus came and he paid that debt on the cross. And now you're freed from the penalty of your sins. He hung in your place. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And so, in Christ alone, God's people were redeemed. God's wrath was satisfied. God's anger towards sin. He took Christ on the cross and he poured his sin into Christ. You know, this is not just a pardoned criminal. You think about a criminal on death row who's guilty, and the governor comes in and says, <clears throat> I set you free. You know, that's a case where everybody knows the guy's guilty and he was set free. This is different, because this is God saying, I've completely transferred your history and your debt onto another, and you are not a pardoned criminal. You are perfectly righteous in my sight now. You have received my righteousness. Of course, not that the governor could ever pay for the the criminal's crimes anyway if he pardoned them. And if he could, he could maybe only pay for one if he was good enough. But no. In scripture, God says, I never declare a guilty person to be innocent. And then he says, God made Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The great swap. God says, I never declare a guilty person to be innocent. But there was one time where I took the only innocent person who ever existed. And I declared him guilty. And I poured out my judgment onto him so that you could truly be innocent so the stain of your sin can be washed clean by the blood of Christ. Christ's sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. Yes, this demonstrated God's justice throughout the Old Testament. They were wondering, how, how could God overlook these sins? Does the blood of bulls and goats really pay for my sin? Could a a worm pay for sin? No. It says God held back. He passed over the sins previously committed, it says in some translations. And then, because he knew what would happen with Christ, and then he applied Christ's death, not just to everyone going forward, but also to those in the past as well. So they also could be declared righteous, truly and completely He was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. How brilliant. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Yes, we see both aspects to God's character. On the one hand, God is perfectly just and can't compromise his just standard at all. But on the other hand, he is the justifier. He is the one who makes us right in his sight. He gives us his righteousness. How does that fit together? Well, there's a story that I think captures this pretty well that maybe a few of us have heard, but I really like it. I think it captures this concept of just and the justifier. It's a story of a a town with a very righteous judge. His judge was known all over the county for how, how just he was. He never slanted the law toward the rich or the poor. He always had the sharpest insights into the case, asked the right questions. Uh, This guy guy was well known as being the most just judge in all the region. And then one day, something horrendous happened. His own son, 19 years old, driving drunk, ran over a young girl and killed her. And the son had to come before the courts. And the court that he had come for was his father's court. Now, pause the story right there. Of course, this would never happen in our justice system because there would be a serious conflict of interest for a father to have to be, preside as judge over his own son. But this is precisely what we have on the cosmic scale, with the God of the universe, because there is no other court he can send the case over to. He loves us, but he knows we've turned against him. And so he's caught in the dilemma that this hypothetical judge in this story is caught in. Standing, presiding over his own son's trial. And, you know, the evidence rolls in, and it's so obvious the kid is guilty. And the big day comes for the verdict, and the judge is there with everyone gathered in the county to see what will happen and the judge slams his gavel down and he says guilty 20 years in the state penitentiary and a gasp spreads through the crowd and on the one hand they're like i mean yeah the kid's guilty and that's that's just but on the other hand that's your son How could you pass a sentence like that on your son whom you love so much? But then, people stood in awe as they watched the judge stand up from his bench, lay down his robe, walk around to the defendant's seat, and sit down and say, but I will serve the sentence for him. And this is what we see in the gospel. We see God just and the justifier, he's the one who pronounces the verdict of guilt and the punishment that it deserves. And yet he is also the one who comes down among us, puts on human flesh, lives the innocent life that we all should have lived, and then offers himself up on the cross in our stead. And he becomes just and the justifier. And it demonstrates his justice and his love. Sort of hard to wrap your mind around this. The greatest event in human history, the cross of Christ. I wanted to show a short movie clip from a movie called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's actually originally a book by C.S. Lewis, who was a Christian. It was an allegory, it's a, and it's written in this make believe land called Narnia. These four youths find themselves transported into Narnia, and uh, one of the siblings of these four he betrays the rest of his siblings to the White Witch, who represents like Satan. Okay, and um, <clears throat> the lead protagonist in this is is this creature named Aslan, who represents Christ, and he's, Aslan is a lion. And there's a a scene where the witch comes to Aslan and she says, that boy right there is a traitor. And the laws of Narnia say that every traitor belongs to me. And if any traitor gets off, and that, that traitor deserves death on the stone table. And she says, if there's injustice, if a traitor is let free, if evil goes unpunished, all of Narnia will overturn in fire and water, and the, the whole world will come undone. And so there's a scene where Aslan tells the witch, Let's go for a walk. And they work out some sort of a deal, and he comes back and says, Edmund is free. We don't have to give him over to the witch. What we didn't tell is the deal that he cut with the witch, which was that he would go and he would offer himself up in the traitor's place. The great and mighty Aslan. So I've got about a four four and a half minute video clip, and this is the two sisters watching the sacrifice of Aslan. Really horrifying, actually, Um, to watch him come up as a a sheep is silent before its shears, speaking no word as he's mocked, jeered at, shaved eaten, cut, tied up, and then finally dragged up onto the stone table. And the witch, as the girls look on, plunges her knife into the body of Aslan, declaring victory for herself and for evil. Well, The girls are horrified. They come back the next morning to the stone table, and what they're met with is quite a surprise. What they see first is Aslan's body lying there, but then they, see that they hear a loud rumbling sound and the table begins to crack. And what they meet is a broken stone table and a living Aslan. And what he says in the book is this. They say, how did this work? And he says, the witch knew the deep magic. The deep magic said, traitors belong to me. Evil must be punished. And he says, but there's a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And this is what the Bible says. When Jesus died on the cross, he broke the power of sin. He broke the law represented by the stone tablets, the stone table. And he defeated death. And he rose from the dead. And he says, I have done this, but I'm only the first. I've been there. I've defeated death, and I know how to lead you out of it as well. And that's the offer that God makes he says, through grace alone, in Christ alone, you can be completely forgiven because of what Jesus did at the cross. And this is through faith alone. It's only the one who has faith in Jesus. And so how does this apply to your life? Well, he gives two quick points here that he'll unpack as the book goes on. But he says, can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No. No. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. I mean, imagine that kid walking out of that courtroom whose dad just gave himself up for 20 years, walking out to his buddies going, man, I really got away with that one. You'd be horrified. That's somebody that doesn't understand what just happened. No. There's no boasting. Religion is all about boasting that I did What God or the gods required. And Christianity leaves no room for boasting, no room for pride. If you really understand the cross, we're made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. So, uh, humility, no boasting, is one application. And another one is this He says, after all, is God God of Jews only? Isn't He also the God of the Gentiles? Of course He is. There's only one God. And he makes people right with himself by faith, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. And so there's a basis for unity. No discrimination, no racism. Scripture says we are all one in Christ Jesus. None are better than the other. And so it gives us the real basis for unity we've always been longing for. Thanks to the cross. We've all been made one. We all came to God the same way. None of us were good enough. And so we're all sinners saved by grace. And so in conclusion here, what have we seen? We've seen no one is righteous. No, not one. We've got a big problem. And that's why God came up with a big solution. He's made his righteousness available to us, his initiation by grace in Christ alone, by faith alone. This is how it's made available to us through what Jesus did on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God. And this should bring us together in humble unity. This is why Christians should be the most humble, loving people on the face of the earth because we've been forgiven so much. We deserve nothing and yet God gave us everything and you can receive that gift tonight. And that's Romans 3. Our problem, God's solution. Yeah, Lord, we were in an impossible situation. You knew it. Um, You knew we got ourselves into it. You knew we were not searching you out, but you took it upon yourself, Lord. You initiated with us. You came down to us. You didn't lower your standards at all, God, but instead, in your love, you took... You took the wrath somehow into yourself, into your son. And um, I I thank you for that, God. I thank you for how that, that gives us true humility. Thank you for how that can give us true unity. And thank you for how it demonstrates your love and your justice in a way that we never dreamed. Amen.